of my roommates was going through my tape deck and she was just utterly horrified. She couldn't believe the music in there. She was like, White Snake, Def Leppard? What is this? Who are you? <laughs> I'm Nick Harcourt, and this is The Sound of Success, a podcast about the music that has shaped the lives of the money, business, and tech world's most fascinating people. Join us each week as we hear about the songs and bands that left their imprint on the folks who shape finance. Welcome to another episode of our Sounds of Success podcast, where we talk with movers and shakers in the financial world about music. I'm Nick Harcourt. On this episode, we welcome Chicago-based journalist Bethany McLean, who, among other things, is the co-author of The Smartest Guys in the Room, which followed on from a piece that she wrote in 2001 for Fortune magazine, Is Enron Overpriced? And apparently, yes, it was. Bethany has since written other books about the mortgage and banking giants who led us into the last financial crisis back in 2008. Another book, All the Devils Are Here. She's a contributing editor to Vanity Fair magazine and has her own podcast called Making a Killing, where she talks with other business writers and thinkers about whatever crazy stuff is going on in the financial world and companies in the spotlight. I'm going to ask you in a moment who's actually in the spotlight. Great to have you on the podcast, Bethany. Before we get into the music, how are you? How's things in your world? What are you up to? Well, things are, I think, pretty good in my world. The sun is coming out in Chicago, which after a long, hard winter is really nice. It feels like we may be, although I say that with my fingers crossed, emerging from the worst of this pandemic. I'm not sure what we're emerging into, but it feels like things are getting a little bit brighter. Um, restaurants are opening in Chicago and it feels good. It's springtime. What have you been working on lately? Is there anything you can share with us? I am writing another book with the same co-author that I worked on, All the Devils Are Here, with a guy named Jen Ocera, and we're writing a book about the pandemic. And it will really focus on the economic weaknesses that the pandemic um, highlighted and exacerbated, as well as how the pandemic reshaped the economy. So it's less of a COVID-specific science book and less of a political book. Um, <laughs> I could write forever about about the political fuck-ups, but this will be more of an economic story. And how has COVID changed your life? Well, it's changed my life a lot. I've been very, very lucky in that no one close to me has died. And that I think, cross fingers, knock on wood, that's a great blessing. My children are now at home. I have a nine year old and an 11 year old so they're being homeschooled it's that's mostly a positive again it's lovely to be able to have my children around me at an age when they would have been going off and doing their own things otherwise but sometimes there's a flip side to that I have my children around me <laughs> so I always worked from home so for me the work from home wasn't the big transition it was having my children around yeah, exactly. um, um, the lack of travel and the lack of speech speaking engagements it's funny I don't know about you but I always considered myself an introvert and I, I am quite introverted I need a lot of time alone. and I get drained by big speaking events, but I also need that. I need that mix in my life. And I was very stunned to discover how much I missed it and how much I missed my social life. So it, it made me reconsider just how much of an introvert I actually am. What about you? Well, for me, I, I actually have also um, been working from home for a lot of the stuff that I've done over the, the years. I do a radio show here in Los Angeles, which I used to go into a studio to do, but I've been doing that from home for the last year. 
Um, I actually had an experience the other day where the internet went down where I live for the first time in the year I've been working remote. So I actually had to drive into the radio station, which is on the campus of uh, California State University in Northridge. I mean, there's been nobody there for a year. The students aren't coming back until the fall. And it was very, very strange. Well, first of all, I had to dash out very quickly in the morning because otherwise there was going to be a real problem with a station running on automation with no guy to come in and take over for a live show. But driving in, it was 20 minutes instead of 40 minutes. Parking, of course, there was nobody there. And then walking into a studio where I haven't been for a year, it was really quite strange. But I will say, much as I love getting up in the morning, making coffee, and then walking into the what used to be my kid's room to do a radio show. Uh, I did really enjoy being in the building, even though there was nobody there, being in a real office building, a real radio station and doing something. So I don't know. I'm looking forward to being able to get out and about again and traveling in particular. And I know that's something that you did a lot. Even if it's only a weekend trip, I, I really have missed not being able to get out of town. Yes. And the, the alone time that being on a plane provides you the ability to just um, read the paper or read a book that you were meaning to read. It's hard to recreate that space in your life. I find, I think it's something people are increasingly talking about, but I was mystified when everybody talked about the freedom granted to you by working from home. I thought to myself, oh no, 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 it just becomes impossible to set any boundaries and it becomes impossible to carve out time for those those things. I hadn't realized, for instance, how much mental space I got just from sitting in the car on the way to the airport. And without those drives, I found it very hard to carve out that mental space. One of the other glories of working from home is that I have a dog. Yes. Who who I've, I've moved to an office downstairs because so that I have a little more privacy from, from the aforementioned children. The dog does not like it that I'm down here, but she comes to visit and scratches on the door as if to say, you can't be down here. You have to leave. You have to come back upstairs. Well, we, we should also mention that people are listening to this on an audio podcast, but you and I are actually doing it on a Zoom where we can see each other as well. So I did just see your dog walk in and Yes. And, and then walk out. She, she came to visit. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about music. Uh, enough about the business, enough about COVID. What's your first musical memory? I grew up listening predominantly to classical music. Uh, my father was a big classical music fan. And I was trying to remember, and I asked him before this, but he didn't respond. My, I remember my sister and I had a piece that we used to call the loud music. And I wish I could remember what that was. I'm hoping he'll get back to me while, while we're talking. My parents really didn't listen to a lot of popular music at the time. And I grew up with, we, they didn't have a TV set. So I didn't get music through TV shows in the way that other other people might. So my earliest memories are really exclusively classical music. And it's funny, I was thinking Handel's Messiah. I used to drag my friends in New York during my early years in New York to listen to the Messiah around the holiday time because it had such uh, nostalgia for me from growing up, even though I, my parents were atheists. And so I didn't grow up in a religious household, obviously. So it just certainly didn't have any religious overtones, but I love the music. Is there any other composer from the time when you were a kid that you became aware of? I mean, were you asking questions about the music that you were listening to? Was your dad telling you, well, this is Beethoven or Bach or yeah. whatever? Yeah, I still remember Beethoven's Ninth and the Ode to Joy um, as something I can listen to over over and over again. And um, I also have on my Spotify and listen to it quite a bit, but box cello suites, particularly cello suite number one. So those are some of the pieces that defined my childhood. 
So with with those early memories of classical music, and as you said, not being uh, able to uh, be exposed to other music through television, did you listen to the radio at all? Did you hear pop music? When did that come into your life? It really didn't until I was in high school, because I grew up in a pretty remote part of the country, and I'm sure there were radio stations, but but there weren't many. Um, and so, so the, the, even the radio and popular music, I don't think was part of my life until maybe eighth or ninth grade, until high school, when I when I had friends and friends listened to popular music. But you're you're gonna you're gonna laugh in part because of where I grew up is a mining town in northern Minnesota called Hibbing, which we can come back to speaking of music that might ring a bell for you. Um, but it the only thing was heavy metal. I grew up in, I was in high school in the 1980s during the era of big hair bands. And my senior high school class song was Poison, I Won't Forget You Baby. So I still remember <laughs> when, when, I got, when I got to college in the fall of 1988, we still had tapes then. And one of my roommates was going through my tape deck and she was just utterly horrified. She couldn't believe the music in there. She was like, White Snake, Def Leppard? What is this? Who are you? <laughs> That's so funny because you're talking about classical music, obviously, and then you went right to the other extreme. And completely. Although Metallica, speaking of heavy metal and classical music, Metallica had that really interesting collaboration, I think, with the San Francisco uh, Orchestra that was a classical and heavy metal collaboration. So perhaps they're not as far apart as they may sound. <laughs> I think they did something with Michael Kamen. He was the conductor, the film composer. Yes, yes I think uh, that's what it was. And it's funny, as you mentioned that, you're right, there's been a couple of heavy metal bands that have done classical collaborations. I think Pink Floyd did something pro probably with the London Symphony Orchestra or whatever. That That is interesting to think that music is able to be performed in that way with an orchestra. And I, I think perhaps for you as well as for me, there ain't nothing like a, an orchestra in just full force. Absolutely. What was your first album that you bought with your own money? So I don't remember the first album that I bought to my with my own money, but the first concert I went to was Brian Adams. And I remember it was a big deal because the town where I grew up, nobody came and it was pretty far away from anything. So it was like a two and a half hour drive to Duluth, which was the nearest big city. And Brian Adams came to Duluth, I think it must have been when I was a freshman in high school. Um, and it was when Summer of 69 was a big song. And so that song still makes me nostalgic. And did you go because of that song? You you were in love with that song, and you were like, "Let's go see, let's go see this guy." Yeah, yeah, yeah. A bunch of us. Um, somebody's mother drove us. <laughs> How old were you? I must have been thirteen. What was your feeling seeing live music like that for the first time? Oh, um, amazing! It's just an entirely different experience which was a lot then. I don't know if I'd ever seen that big a crowd before. Um, the music itself, the way music is transformed by the crowd, the way music is entirely different when it's played live. It, it has echoes of the song that you heard on the radio, but that one is almost, uh, um, one is like a blurred, blurred version makes it sound pejorative. It's not, it's just different incarnations of the same piece of music. Do you have albums or artists that you return to Perhaps when you want to dance, for example, if you want to dance, what do you throw on? Um, I have not been much of a dancer. What about when no one's looking? <laughs> Rihanna, um, um, some Lady Gaga, um, for sure. <laughs>
<laughs> I did take dance classes for a little while until they abruptly ended, not really because of this, but I think it, this is a little bit of a side story, but I think it um, ended when, and I think she was just too embarrassed to come back, but my dance teacher had pot in her coat pocket. And we came back upstairs after a dance lesson and the pot was all over the floor and my dogs had gotten into it. And I have a, a, a golden retriever and a Doberman pincher. The Doberman was the one who came to visit downstairs. And I thought it was the golden and I wasn't particularly worried because he, I call him the indestructible bleaker because he can eat anything and it never seems to matter. Uh -huh. I went out to drinks with a friend and I came home later that night and my nanny met me at the door and she was distraught. And she said, spring can't stand up. This is my Doberman, um, she can't walk. And so we both were very upset and we somehow carried the very large Doberman pincher down and got her into the car and I took her to the 24-hour emergency which is quite a thing in and of, it, in and of itself yeah. and it turned out that my dog was stoned out of her mind and anyway that's how I lost my dance teacher <laughs> oh wow 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 what about uh artists that perhaps make you feel a little melancholy or if you are feeling a little sad is there an artist yeah. or an album that you come back to yeah, I like music when I'm feeling melancholy um, and tend to listen to it a lot. And I think for me, the two are the obvious ones, perhaps, but Leonard Cohen and, of course, coming back to my childhood in Hibbing, Minnesota, Bob Dylan. Let me ask you about both of those artists. I mean, obviously, you know, legendary and, and actually from the same period of time, really, coming up. Um, Dylan, of course, is such a well, he's just omnipresent and has been for 50 years, I guess, but such a, a legend in Minnesota as well. What, what is it about Bob Dylan that, that, that you like? I like his songwriting ability. And I think what really made me a Dylan convert was reading Chronicles um, and realizing and it's not surprising that a few years ago he won the Nobel Prize because he is a poet. He's a wonderful writer. And I think that's what hooked me on him. There were particular songs that I always loved, Tangled Up in Blue in particular. And I loved the album Time Out of Mind. I think that's my favorite Dylan album. But it's funny because growing up in Hibbing, despite the fact that Dylan was from Hibbing, because it was such a heavy metal culture. He wasn't celebrated. You might think as a result of that would all grow up listening to Bob Dylan all the time because it's not like there was that much else going on in Hibbing, Minnesota. You have to, you have to celebrate what, what there is sure. and they do now. But, but not at the time when I was growing up. I barely even knew who Dylan was. And there is a possibly apocryphal story about him, about how he performed in the high school when he was in school there. And people were really disrespectful of him and had threw things at him on the stage because they thought he was such a terrible singer that he couldn't possibly be allowed upon the stage. Right. And I love that story, both if true, what it says about talent and when it's recognized, but also that it, it may not be true. Some years ago, I was back in Hibbing visiting and they had a Bob Dylan exhibit at the Iron Ore Museum. <laughs> Quite a combination of, of, of things. And there was a wall put up recounting what, where people could affix their notes to this particular story and say, and, and their memories of, of this story. And there were notes ranging from, I was there and this never happened. People in this town would never be that rude. Of course that didn't happen to, I was there and how horrible it is that we treated somebody who had become a legend like Bob Dylan. So it is also a testament in a way to the slipperiness of memory. Yes, or, the, or maybe the suggestibility of memory is a better word than the slipperiness. Yeah, and obviously whether it was true or not, it wasn't the first time that people threw things at him, obviously, because... Yeah. 
probably not. So maybe it got juxtaposed with and transposed with some other story. When he plugged in at Newport all those all those years later. Um, it's yeah. interesting because obviously he's, as you said, a, a poet. And, and so is Leonard Cohen, although very different. What draws you to Leonard Cohen's work? I think his voice, I find it incredibly compelling and haunting. Some of his lyrics stick with me. I've always loved it's the crack that lets the light shine through. I think that's such a, a wise saying about life. You've got some great lines. But- yeah, right. And um, I recently read a book, if you haven't read it yet, and it's about how Hallelujah became the song. It's a fascinating book because it didn't start out that way. It actually didn't even make it onto the album for which it was recorded or a studio refused to release the album because they thought it sucked so much. And then it was over the ensuing decades that Hallelujah had this fascinating path to becoming the totally cult song that it is today. So I, I love that notion that you can put a piece of work out there and it can be transformed by other artists rendition of it and become something that it absolutely didn't start out as being yeah it is amazing that song in particular is a great example of that you know unless you were a leonard cohen fan you probably didn't know it until it was covered jeff buckley i think did jeff buckley who did who did the first and then his tragic death made the song iconic let me ask you about other artists that that you've perhaps listened to during the years that never quite made it I've been playing music on the radio for for a living for 30 years, and I have, I guess, a reputation as somebody who plays things early. And I'm very fortunate that I've managed to make a living off of that skill. But there's tons of bands and artists and songs that I've thought, oh, yeah, that's a hit, and it never was. And I look back at it now, and I wonder, what is that moment where uh, a song does take off or an artist does take off and become massive and somebody else doesn't, you know? And then you look back at your record collection years later and you go, yeah, I wonder what ever happened to, to whoever it was. It's fascinating that there is that ineffable magic that makes something take off or not. And I hope this is still true, but I remember sitting at a Vanity Fair conference a few years ago, and it was a panel between the guy who ran HBO and the head, I think it was the head of Pinterest, and they were discussing what it was that made something go 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 viral. Maybe it was the head of Instagram. It was one of the two. But mm-hmm. they were talking about what it is that made something go viral. And it was Richard Plepler of HBO. And they were saying, well, what, how can you predict it? And they were both saying, you actually can't we can't. And I thought, how wonderful. The robots have not succeeded yet. And as long as we re- as long as human beings remain fundamentally unpredictable in this way, then, yes. then, then it's all good. What about a re- any recent discovery? What have you been listening to perhaps in the last year or so, or an artist or a song that you'd like to share with us? We're also putting together a Sounds of Success playlist. Ooh. So I've gone back in time um, recently. This year, I've spent a lot of time listening to the Rolling Stones, which is going to sound like you didn't listen to the stones before i actually really didn't that much i think i had the opposite take which is that oh everybody likes the rolling stone i'm not going to like the rolling stones i'm not going to listen to them and a friend put together a playlist for me and i've been listening to that a lot and the more i listen to it the more i like it i love she's a rainbow i love happy and i love keith richards um wicked as it seems so those those are songs i've been listening to a lot i've been listening to david bowie there's something about golden years that I love. And I do have um, an 11-year-old daughter who wants to be a singer. So as a result, I have been listening to Taylor Swift. And speaking of songwriting, we actually just watched her documentary about the making of folklore, which is really fantastic. I guess because of her background as a country music singer, 
she brings a real storyteller's aesthetic to her songs and sort of the the mode of a Bruce Springsteen or a Bob Dylan and listening to her about the making of folklore. But wow, it, I'm grateful for my 11 year old for making me listen to it. Uh, I haven't I haven't seen that that one myself but I mean yeah she recorded and put out two albums during COVID which is remarkable mm-hmm. um, and there is a, another documentary I think that came out maybe a year or so ago the Taylor Swift documentary that I saw and she's she's quite a force of nature she yeah. really she really is and uh, she, she's a she's a fascinating um, artist I think well I've got one question left and I want you to think about this what's your guilty pleasure Musically, of course. Oh, my guilty pleasure is bad music, like total pop radio, bad, bad music. I can be perfectly happy listening to Ava Max, all of the queens, anything that you might find on a top 40 radio station driving in my car. Um, <laughs> we've been having a fairly highbrow conversation about, about music, and I sort of want my taste to be more highbrow than, than they actually are, perhaps, and they can be in some respects. But give me a bad pop song any day, and uh, I mean, bad pop songs work for a reason they elicit some sort of deep fundamental human nostalgia or happiness or, or something i don't know what it is but anyway so play a bad pop song for me and i'm likely to be happy and i still wait on the subject of guilty pleasures i still think um guns and roses appetite for destruction is a great album that's what i wanted um, <laughs> yeah 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 and, and look you know you, you you started off by talking about classical music so we started off highbrow yeah then we sort of worked out went low brow. Yeah. <laughs> worked our way through through your musical taste and ended up with Guns N' Roses. So uh, it's been a lot of fun catching up with you. I'm really, really happy to, to meet you over Zoom and that you uh, said yes when, when we asked you to talk about your musical choices and tastes for the sounds of success. So thanks, Bethany. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for listening. The Sound of Success is produced by Elizabeth Thompson with myself, Nick Harcourt, for Spark Network. Our theme music is by Keita Clay. For more episodes, find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and at sparknetwork.com. Hold up. 